the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday and you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to a program that is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind. If something's troubling you and circumstances of your life, we'll do the best that we can to tell you what God's Word says. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. We've got some good ones today. Um, or you can send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. I tell you every day because I care about you. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the KSLR app. It is also free. Hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Tuesday, we don't have anything going on, so we get right to questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Simeon. He says, in Job, was Elihu's response to Job and his three friends right or godly or in line with God's perspective? It sounds like Elihu had a proper understanding of the situation and that he was right to scold Job and his friends. And God doesn't reprimand Elihu at the end, but I just want to be sure. Uh, Simeon, no. Elihu and as well as the other three friends, of course, were way, way, way off base. Now, Elihu, there's a couple of things we need to understand about him. We need to understand that he was young, that he apparently was brilliant, that he had a lot of knowledge about God. But the problem with Elihu was that knowledge was delivered without love. First Corinthians 13, Paul says, it doesn't matter how much I know, it doesn't matter what miracles I do, it doesn't matter if I have understanding of all mysteries, if I have not love, I'm just making noise. And Elihu, as well as Job's three friends, uh, were absolutely in uh, that noise-making category because that's all they were doing. First and foremost, um, how could he even write to scold Job when in fact God commended Job at the beginning of the book. God said to the devil himself, I have no one like him. No one is righteous as this man. This is a man that that God was proud of. Not a perfect man, no human ever has been. But he was above all of the others. That's to be taken very literally. And in this particular case, if God says he's righteous, then we've got to agree that he's righteous, that he's blameless. And by the way, the rest of the book of Job proves that statement to be true. So Job didn't do anything to deserve what happened. First, it was the three friends who came in. Then it was Elihu who came in. And they all began with the the process 
they all began with the process of blaming Job. Something must be wrong. You must have done something wrong. So you're never right when you're judging people, when you claim to have knowledge. Now here's, I think, what Elihu's problem was. And I've met a lot of men just like him, young men, who had great giftedness, had great intellect. They had the ability to recall information. But they didn't have the wisdom to know how to disseminate that information. Elihu was arrogant. He was unloving and unkind. And he did not have God's approval. So, Simeon, I hope that helps. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one is from Don. He says, In Genesis, after Lot flees Sodom with his daughters, his daughters sleep with him and have children through him, but there doesn't seem to be any repercussion or punishment for this great sin. If someone comes up and says, Well, sexual relations such as this go unpunished in the Bible, so God's fine with it. Just look at Lot and his daughters. They got the children they wanted. In fact, it's almost as if the act was blessed. How can I respond other than just knowing that they're so wrong? Well, Don, one of the things that you have to do in this story is understand that there were enormous repercussions. Now, the daughters were raised by a compromised dad. I think that's the real value in this story. You know, if Peter didn't say... Uh, in the New Testament that, that Lot was a righteous man. We, we wouldn't even know if Lot was saved. Why? Because of the way he lived. Lot chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He slowly was sort of ingratiated into the culture of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so his daughters watched him compromise his walk with God all of those years. So finally when They were frightened. They thought, well, now there's no man. We're not going to have children. Jewish women wanted babies. So here's what happened. They waited till their father was drunk. They went in and slept with him. Job, uh, I'm sorry, uh, um, Lot didn't have any remembrance of this. It wasn't something that Lot initiated. But you see, they obviously knew that Lot was going to come in and drink himself to sleep. They knew that he'd be so drunk that they could have sex with him without him having any knowledge or being aware of it. And so that's what they did. Where did they learn that? They learned that from their dad. They learned that from their dad. So uh, um, that's the most important thing that we can learn from this account in Genesis 19. But as to gar- as to regarding there's, there's no consequences, this chapter, 19th uh, chapter of Genesis, ends with, consequences beyond anything we can imagine. The sons by these two daughters were ancestors of the Moabites and the Ammonites, people who are enemies of God, always were as long as they were in existence. So there were tremendous consequences. So just because God doesn't detail the consequences, we have to understand that they were there. And in fact, the world still suffers by extension from the consequences of this particular sin. So uh, just tell somebody to do their history, read the Bible, and, and know their history. Compromise leads to terrible sin and terrible consequences. That was the case with Lot. Hope that helps you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Here's another question from our email inbox, this time from David. He says, I have an atheist friend who asked me this. Who can hear God and communicate with him? Are the Catholics correct in saying that only their priests can communicate with him? Or can anyone communicate with God as most of the other religions believe? And then David says, how can I explain this to my friend? David, a couple of things. I would ask, first of all, why your friend cares if he's an atheist, he doesn't believe in God. This is a silly question to even consider. Now, the reason I would be that direct is because it's likely that God is dealing with this person. And you can be the one who shares Jesus with him. Why is it important? Do you want to talk to God? 
Would you like to hear from God? Maybe that will provide an opening for you. So, as to the question of the Catholics correct in saying that only the priests can communicate with them, of course they're not right. To communicate with God, you've got to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That means you have to be saved, you have to belong to God, we have to be a part of His family. So here's who can hear God and communicate with Him. We can hear God and communicate with Him if we're born-again Christians. Nobody else can. So please understand that. The only thing that God can hear from a sinner is, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I need help. There's no other way that an unbeliever can communicate with God because that unbeliever has no access to God. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But David, I've just got a sneaking suspicion that there's something going on by the scenes here with your friend. And the way to pursue this conversation is to find out, I mean, really find out, say, you're my friend? You claim to be an atheist and you want to hear about communicating with God. And then you can tell him how he can hear from God or how she can hear from God. You don't say which gender it is. But that's really important because this is somebody who's giving you an opening to share your Jesus. It also gives you an opportunity with his last comment, can anyone communicate with God as most other religions believe? You can tell him, you know, God and you seem to have one thing in common. God hates religion as much as you do. You see, being religious has no value. Doing things, trying to be pious has no value. Only a relationship with God. The way I would explain it is simple. You only have access to God by virtue of believing in Jesus Christ. And you can help him with that. I also think we need to sort of debunk the myth that there's certain religious people who have an in with God. If you're a born-again Christian, God wants to hear from you. He wants you to hear him. And then lastly, and this isn't something, David, that would have any value for your friend, but it certainly would for you. We can all hear from God through his word. Every day he's given us this love letter from heaven and he will speak to us very personally. His word, it says, is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It'll convict you of sin when you're guilty. His word will tell you how to not be guilty any longer. If you confess your sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. So the way we hear from God is primarily through His Word. Now, that does not mean, David, that He doesn't speak to our hearts, because He does. But when we hear God speaking to our heart, because there's so many spirits out there screaming at us, there's so much noise in this world that we live in, We have to test the spirit. First John 4, 1. Brothers, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. So if you think God's spoken to your heart about something, then you have to have a frame of reference to judge whether or not it's really from the Lord. God will never say anything to you that, he, that will contradict what he's already spoken to you or to everybody in his word. You know, David, this isn't your question, but I've had so many people over the years come up and say things like, well, God told me it was okay to get a divorce. He wants me to be happy. Well, did your spouse cheat on you? Did your spouse, is your spouse abusing you? Did your spouse abandon you? Well, no. Well, then God didn't tell you. Well, yes, he did. I know he did. You see, that's why we need the Word of God. because there's an enemy in our world who wants to destroy any fruit coming from your life. And the way that can happen is for you to compromise or to fall into sin. So I hope that helps a little bit. David's a little more than you asked, but I thought that was important. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jennifer. Uh, Pastor Ron, will you discuss the idea that Mary had no other children and was a perpetual 
virgin. Well, Jennifer, I'll discuss it insofar as saying that's nonsense. The Bible tells us that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. We know the names of two of his brothers, James, the half-brother of the Lord, uh, Mary's oldest after Jesus, uh, a leader, a pillar of the early church. Uh, James the just is what he's called. Uh, and of course, Jude, uh, his name would have been Judas, would have been after the Judas betrayal. Uh, nobody wanted to be called Judas. Um, Jude, who also wrote a one-chapter uh, epistle in our New Testament. So we know that's true. Um, there's references to them. He had another brother, Simon. So we know there's references biblically. So the, 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 the myth that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that there were no other children, is simply uh, the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. It is wrong. It's dishonest scholarship. Uh, and it's a tradition which is damaging and causes lots and lots of trouble. So thank you very much. Here is, we got Jeff calling from San Antonio Online 1. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. How you doing, Pastor Ron? God bless you. Thank you, Jeff. I'm doing uh, well. This is my second time calling. And what I'd like to ask, uh, yesterday you were talking a little bit about how you received Jesus into your heart as an adult when your boys were older teenagers mm -hmm. and how you told them that um, everything that you had uh, talked to them about was was not correct, but that you would mm -hmm. be coming back to them when you found mm -hmm. the correct answer. Um, I'm curious to know, and I love hearing you talk about your testimony. I love little tidbits about that, but when did you first experience a calling to preach or to serve in the ministry? What did that feel like? How does someone actually uh, distinguish or discern that calling as being authentic? And I, I ask you because I recently read a, a statistic where that uh, states that I don't think this was George Barna. I'm not sure who it was, so I can't say how authoritative it is. But he, the writer, went to say that maybe 40 percent or so of pastors actively engaged in pastoral ministry have received an authentic call from God to do that. And so I, I know it's a very uh, very critical thing to discern and those that haven't received a call probably need to just serve as we're called to serve every Christian but uh, a calling to ministry is very distinct and I'm curious to know uh, a little about your thoughts on that and a little of your testimony if you're willing to share and I'll take your, your answer uh, off the phone because I'm driving. Thank you, Jeff. I can do that, and uh, I, I'm honored to do it. By the way, uh, for for anybody in the audience, if you have, uh, if you're curious, or if you have any interest in hearing, and uh, I personally think I'm one of the most boring people on planet Earth, but if you are interested in my testimony, uh, it's featured on, on the front of our website, CalvarySA.com, uh, and boy, it gets a, a lot of activity. Uh, and a lot of response. One other thing, Jeff, that I'll say before uh, I, I answer your questions directly uh, is is this. Um, um, when I'm asked to speak other places, um, I, I always just teach the Bible. But there are times when people who know little bits about my testimony will say, well, well, well Pastor Ron, we want you to share your testimony. And I always tell them the same thing. Well, I'll do it if that's what you want. However, People are going to get saved, so you have to have people there who can receive those new believers. I don't know why God does it this way, but but uh, the, the response um, to salvation is always huge uh, when I'm asked to share my testimony. and uh, I just see the hand of God, and that's not that there's anything special or spectacular about me or my testimony. Uh, it's just something that God has done consistently for many, many, many years now. Uh, Jeff, you, you're absolutely right in saying that there are a whole bunch of people, and I don't know what the statistics or the veracity of the statistics are, 
but there's a whole bunch of people uh, who call themselves reverend or pastor or uh, the most right reverend. Uh, you can fill in whatever blank that you, you have in your experience, uh, who aren't called at all. Now, we know they're not called because they're, they're not teaching the truth of the Word of God. Um, we know that there's a lot of people in it, just like in Paul's day, there are in our day people who view ministry as a, as a means to get rich. Uh, unfortunately, there's some people who've never been able to even survive out in the world, and being a pastor is the best paying job that they've ever had. Uh, that's wrong, and it just shouldn't be the case. Uh, to, to, to do what I do without knowing that it's God who's put you in this position will be the most frightening thing on the face of the earth for me. I couldn't even imagine standing before God and explaining why I compromised his word or explaining why I didn't love his people or didn't pray for his people sufficiently when he gave me this opportunity to do so. So the, the, the call from God is absolutely essential. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we who are pastors um, are gifts to the church. Again, that doesn't mean that I think I'm special. But if I'm going to be a gift from God to the church, then I've got to take very seriously the calling. And um, for me, Jeff, it was so clear that I couldn't possibly avoid it. Um, I had been a Christian for six months. Um, that's all. Uh, I was devouring the Bible. I, I was so in love with Jesus. My transformation was radical. But I had no idea what I was going to do. My, my background is such that I'd sinned so grievously. I'd done so many horrible things and hurt so many people that the idea that I could ever be a pastor or preacher was just unthinkable. It, it, it honestly never occurred to me. I'd watch Christian television. I'd, I'd listen to other pastors on the radio. It never, it never occurred to me to say, you know, I think I can do that. Uh, one day, um, I'm coming home from my job. Um, it's, I lived in Southern California at the time. I had a 39-mile commute from where I worked to my, to my house. And the traffic, as you know, in Southern California is horrible. Sometimes it could take three hours. So I'm sitting in, sitting in traffic one day. I'm listening to K-Wave Radio, which is the Calvary Chapel-owned radio station that, that has Bible teaching on it in Southern California. Uh, Raul Reese, who is a friend of mine, he uh, now, I didn't know him then, but he's a friend of mine who came on the radio, his radio program uh, came on, and he was... Uh, teaching a message from First um, Timothy, and it was about the calling to be a pastor. And all I can tell you, Jeff, the only thing I can tell you is that it was as though, I'm in a car by myself, but it was as though Jesus was in the passenger seat. And he was saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. This is for you. And Raul Reese began to talk about the calling to be a pastor. He who seeks the office of a pastor seeks a noble thing. He talked about the requirements of being a pastor. I certainly didn't meet those standards. But I just knew, and it's never possible to, to tell somebody how you knew, but I absolutely knew. And I remember I had a car phone at the time, back when car phones were like the size of beatboxes. I had a car phone. And uh, I called Paula, and I said, Paula, I think I'm being called to be a pastor. And she said, Ron, call your sister. Um, my sister, Christy, and Paula had talked about this before. And so I called my sister, and I said, Christy, I think I'm, I'm called to be a pastor. And she started crying. She said, I've known this for a long time. The Lord spoke to my heart about that a long time ago. So that was my first confirmation, Jeff. And I just knew that's what I was going to do. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what to do next. But I knew that that was the Lord who'd called me to do that. I remember going to a, a man, actually my sister's husband at the time, 
who um, was instrumental in, in helping us uh, in our early walk with the Lord, Paul and me both. He actually led Paul to the Lord, and, and while he didn't lead me to the Lord, um, you know, he'd take us out to breakfast and talk to us about the faith. He was a, a more mature Christian. Of course, everybody was a more mature Christian. So I, I remember asking him, his name was Dennis, I said, Dennis, I think I'm called to be a pastor. You know what he said, Jeff? He said, Ron, you're crazy. You're lucky God saved you. He'll never be able to use you. And while that could have been devastating, the call was so unmistakably clear that I knew that's what I was going to do. So if you're called to be a pastor, it's the best job in the history of the world. If you're not called, it would be the worst. To be a pastor, you've got to be stubborn in a godly way. You've got to have great perseverance. I think you have to have pretty thick skin. Um, as many people as there are that love me, there are people that hate me and people that so strongly disagree. They're, they're trying to undermine what we do. At the same time, I know it was Jesus who called me. Nobody else. Jesus is the only one who can release me. And I'm really grateful for what he's done. Jeff, thank you for the question. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program it's tuesday and we've got 30 minutes left for your calls and questions 340-9585 here's a question that just came in from our uh email inbox this is from mick and I'm going to do a little bit of editing here because it's quite long. Um, he says, I got into a discussion with a friend about the Apocrypha. We agreed that reading these extra books would be fun for learning purposes in church history, but where our difference in opinion came in is with the importance of the Apocrypha. He claimed the church removed the books and that they're still scripture and crucial. In fact, that it's the complete scripture that the church made the decision to leave the books out of the Bible, not God. And that's when the Bible talks about being complete. Um, that those verses included in the Apocrypha, not adding or taking away, uh, and that all scriptures God breathed. Um, I told him that was wrong. Uh, the, the church that those verses included the Apocrypha, he said, and I told him it was wrong. A couple of things. Uh, the, the church never removed books from the Bible. Um, w- what we've got to understand is when the Catholic Church makes that claim, Mick, that the, the claim is that it was in the Roman Catholic Bible, the edition of the Bible that they approved, uh, and, and they were later removed, that's not the case. The Apocryphal books were never part of Jewish scripture, never considered a part of the of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish canon of scripture, not ever. So these extra biblical books, and you're right, Mick, they do have value, historic value, but they're not inspired by God. And the only books that belong in the canon of scripture are the books that we know God wrote the canon that's been passed down forever. The fact that the Roman Catholic Church added those books in was a result of them trying to find justification for their extra-biblical doctrines. So they throw in these other things, purgatory and among other things. They throw in these other books and, and claim the authority from God. But, but there's inconsistencies in the apocryphal books. All of those books... Are, are, are in contradistinction in some places to what we know has been revealed to us in Scripture written by God, passed on by God. So don't ever apologize. Martin Luther didn't take them out. Um, the church didn't take them out. 
the Roman Catholic Church was wrong to insert them in the first place. Again, they have value historically, but they have no value scripturally in the sense that these are books written by men. I'll give you sort of a, 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 a New Testament perspective. We have the gospel according to Barnabas. We have the gospel according to Mary Magdalene. We have the gospel according to Thomas. You know, there are lots of books, men and in some cases women, who took on um, the task of presenting their perspective of God's word, of Jesus' life and ministry. The problem is God didn't ask him to write it. And so those extra-biblical books are just that. They have some limited value historically, but they have no value as a part of the canon of Scripture. It's very important for us to understand. Um, I'll give you another example. The Apostle Paul, we know he wrote three letters to Corinth. We know that because he references the letter that he received. And he received or sent them back a response but but we didn't get the first one. We have First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Uh, all that means is that the first letter Paul wrote to the cor- to the Corinthians, the first correspondence, wasn't written by God. That was just correspondence. But the two that we have are letters that were written by God, the the the, the breath of God, the Spirit of God pushing the pens of men. So there's a lot of good information. There's a lot of historical information out there. However like any other piece of literature, we cannot determine that they are 100% true. The only way we know that is that God's Word is 100% true. So what we have in our 66 books in the Bible, again, the, 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 the apocryphal books are not referenced in Scripture. The apocryphal books were never part of the Jewish canon. And they were added by the Catholic Church. And when you find those books included, you know you're reading a Catholic Bible. And you're getting an imperfect perspective. So when the book of Revelation says, he who adds or subtracts from these words will meet the fate of all the the, the, um, um, judgments in this book, has nothing to do with the Apocrypha at all. Um... The second part of your question says, well, what about if that person said, what about a book like Esther or Job or any of the others that Jesus or Paul never directly referenced in the New Testament? How do we know those books uh, are a true picture um, that's being referenced else if, if, if that uh, is your basis for what true scripture is? Well, the basis for true scripture isn't at all the fact that they are, are um, referenced by other places. Uh, we know Esther um, and and Job. Um, by the way, Job is a poetic book, and it has to be viewed that way. But we know those are books that were written by God because they've always been a part of the Jewish canon. Um, in order to find out, now this is there's a couple of things that that we need to do. We need to be interested enough in knowing the truth that we don't hold on to tradition just for the sake of tradition. So let me recommend just a couple of books if you really want something that's really heavy and scholarly. Uh, Josh McDowell does a great uh, job with with uh, the canon of Scripture, where it came from, how we got it, in in a book called The Ev- Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a new edition of it. It's uh, constantly being updated. Uh, it's really heady reading. Uh, if not, uh, you don't want to get that deep, you can go The Case for the Bible by Lee Strobel. Uh, or uh, two little books that I have found wonderfully effective over the years uh, by Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. Know what we believe and know why we believe, and he also deals with the question of the canon of Scripture. You know, Mick, over the years, from the very beginning, the enemy has tried to, to, to discredit the Bible as the Word of God. And we've all heard that, well, you really believe the Bible's the Word of God? Yes, we do. We really and truly do. But you've got to settle in your own mind and heart whether or not it is. I can say it is. I've discovered that it is in my own life. But that took a lot of work, a lot of research. 
You know, when I was first saved, Jeff said he wanted to hear a little bit of my testimony. When I was first saved, I had so many questions. And every time I'd ask a Christian, you know, when you're a brand new believer, you think everybody knows more than you, so you're asking questions of everybody and you're getting a lot of opinions. But every time I'd ask a question, they would respond with these words. Well, the Bible says. And I didn't know how the Bible could be the Word of God and, and, and still be written by men. I had no understanding of how, how it was put together. So I made it my ambition because I wanted to know if what I believed was true. So I made it the goal of my life to find out whether or not I could depend on this thing we call the Word of God, the Bible. Now, in my particular case, I know people make lifetime work out of this, but for me, it was slightly less than three months and I was completely and irrevocably convinced. And that changed my life. Because after that initial nearly three-month period of time, really struggling to prove what was true, reading pros and reading cons and taking long walks of prayer and struggling, wrestling with Jesus over this issue, when the moment the light went on, from that moment forward, my life has never taken a step backwards. I've never had a single moment's doubt about my own salvation. I've never had a single moment's doubt about my calling as a pastor. And I can have a radio show like this because I know that what I'm telling people is the Word of God. I've seen the Word of God change people's lives so dramatically that there simply is no longer any question about its veracity. So Mick, you and your friend need to get together and do some research and convince, be convinced on your own that the Bible really is the Word of God. God has preserved it throughout the centuries. There were so many battles. People lost their lives over the Word of God. By the way, the last two books that were accepted into the canon as authoritative were Hebrews because the author wasn't identified and James and the reason James was wrestled with is because of a misunderstanding that people thought James was teaching work salvation and yet God prevailed so the Apocrypha is not scripture um and, and, and Jesus never, of course, quoted from it. But that doesn't mean the books that he didn't quote from were not scripture. Thank you, Mick. I appreciate the question. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is, well, it's appropriate timing from Anthony. He says, where in the Bible can I find teaching about purgatory? You see, Anthony, you can't. <laughs> That's the thing. Purgatory's a made-up pipe dream. There is no such thing as purgatory, no state of limbo, no holding place that we can pray people out of or, or hope that we can maybe do enough things or give enough money to where the people that we care for will be released from that prison. Purgatory is a fairy tale. And so much damage has been done by the teaching on purgatory, Anthony, that people will lose their lives in eternity as a result hoping for that second chance you know the idea makes us feel better it's like well they're not completely in hell yet it's just not true it's just not true Victor wants to know do miracles still happen and have you ever done any uh, Victor miracles do still happen um they don't happen the way that we see them on what I call so-called Christian television. Uh, people falling down and shaking or people's legs growing or, or barking and screaming or passing out. None of, the, that, the, none of those things are miracles. That's just nonsense. But miracles still happen. Now remember that miracles are designed by God to point to Jesus. So by definition, miracles uh, are, are rare especially in a world, a country, where we have all the pointing to Jesus that we need. Signs and wonders. Signs point to something. 
Well, the miracles that we read about in the book of Acts, the miracles Jesus did were done to point to him, to validate the authority he had to make the claims that he had, to do the things that he did. But for us, we don't need signs. We don't need signs. Um, Still, there are miracles that are done. Uh, If you go to third world countries, if you go to the Middle East, where people actually um, could lose their lives for converting to Christianity, uh, Jesus will appear to them in dreams. He will appear to them in visions. Uh, He will heal people miraculously. Um, So, yeah, miracles still happen. But remember, the miracle is just the forerunner of the person behind the miracle, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Our problem is that that's what we focus on. We want a miracle. And that's to not have, by definition, a miracle is something that happens very, very rarely. As to whether I've ever done any, uh, Victor, I know I've prayed for a lot of people who have been unexplainedly healed. Uh, As I say that, I also want to be honest and say I've prayed for many, many, many more people who weren't healed. Um, I've seen people who were so high on, in one case, heroin, uncontrollable, and simply by me making them look into my eyes, they sobered up instantly. I think that's pretty miraculous. But I'm not looking for miracles. Let me tell you a quick story, Victor, and anybody else who's interested. Um, We did a, we've done a whole bunch of, we have a ministry here called Joy of Jesus. We we, um, were taking a big group out to um, Reynosa, Mexico. Uh, We planted a church down there. We're just going to hit the streets and talk to people. And uh, our junior high school teacher, Spanish teacher at the time, um, uh, he said, well, why don't I give people just sort of a, a quick course in in conversational Spanish so they, they'll, they'll have a, a little bit of a, an advantage. And so I thought that was great. So what we did on, on I think it was Tuesday nights back then, but we did eight weeks of, of uh, about an hour-long conversational Spanish class. And God so blessed that. Um, when we went to uh, Reynosa, now I always travel with the translator. We've got many, many uh, people here in the church that are fluent in Spanish, of course. And um, uh, I, I, communication's important to me. I want to be able to, to, to be understood, and I want to understand. I'm, so I'm looking in the hearts. So we went to Reynosa, and I had my translator with me. Uh, this was a wonderful lady named Wanda who's been with us for forever. I just love her. She's a daughter to me. And we were out in the uh, in the streets of Reynosa, and for a day and a half, a full day and a half, I was speaking Spanish without the need for a translator. And I was able to understand. I'm sure I was butchering the Spanish. That's not the point. But, but I was able to talk to people and to understand people for a day and a half without the advantage of a translator. And people were getting saved like crazy. Now, I considered that a miracle, a gift from God to help me do what was in my heart to do. Now, we've since been to Monterrey, we've been back to Reynosa, uh, we've been to Durango, we've had other places in Mexico, and, and that's never happened again. So it's just sort of a one-time little kiss from Jesus to say, I'm going to show you something. And boy, did he ever. So yes, Victor, miracles still happen. Um, I don't think most of the time the guy that does the miracles or the woman that does the miracles is supposed to get any attention from it. So that's the best I can do. Thank you for the question. Let's go to line one and talk to Ray from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Good? I'm doing well, Ray. Thanks. Good. Um, To keep on that same tone of the miracles, uh, I'm familiar with your driving episode where your car spun around, and you had mentioned uh, 
you felt like an angel had directed the the vehicle. But uh, is there any biblical uh, place that would point to uh, Jesus being the the power behind the miracle? Okay, um, and and uh, with in mind that you know not all spirits are from God, there are bad ones out there, too, you know, so don't believe everything. Um, is there is there anywhere that would indicate that, uh, you know, like today in the third world countries, the miracles, that uh, anything that would indicate that it's not uh, right to think that uh, God uses angels or sends angels to do his work, or... I don't know how exactly to phrase that, but I wondered yeah. if there was any particular scriptures that point that way. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're getting at, Ray. Thank you very much. Um, uh, a couple of things. We're reminded of the Apostle Paul's words that even if an, an angel from God would preach to you uh, another gospel, um, let him be accursed or cut off from God because he's establishing, Paul is in that that um, passage of Scripture, uh, the authority of the Word of God. So a, a messenger, a true messenger from God is not going to contradict what God has already revealed to us. That's very, very important. And the reason it's important is because there are so many other spirits and the devil has supernatural power. Now his power is nothing compared to the power of God. But but he is a fallen angel. We know that his name was Lucifer, um, uh, and he's always been trying to counterfeit God's miracles, and he does it to convince people. In fact, we had a question last week on the program um, about his fatal head wound in the Book of Revelation. He's going to actually counterfeit to the point where the man that we know as the Antichrist is going to be raised from the dead. So yeah, the devil has real power, but it's not power from God. And over and over we see angels appearing. At the same time, we see the lying spirits behind the false prophets. So what we've got to do, Ray, is discern the difference between who is authentically telling us the message of God and who is who is trying to lead us astray. And I know this is a, a, a one-string guitar that I keep playing, but the only way we can do that is to know the Word of God. Hebrews said that some of us have entertained angels unaware, in fact, unaware that they're really angels. And I can tell you that, well, I've seen, um, I, I mentioned on the program yesterday, angelic intervention three times in our lives, mine and Paula's, um, uh, that, that I know for sure uh, was angels. Um, the enemy has been shouting and screaming and yelling at me, thousands upon thousands of times. So this this idea of discernment is essential when dealing with the spirit world. You know, Ray, one of the things that you can do, I think, is uh, go to Daniel chapter 10. It's right after the great revelation of the end that, that Daniel was given. And Daniel chapter 10 gives us some real insight into the goings on behind the scenes or in the spiritual realm um, the, the the warfare that constantly is taking place in the heavens. So um, in our Bibles, of course, we have angels sent from God that are on display. Um, but the way to know if this really is a messenger from God is is discernment by knowing the Word of God. One other thing, and I'm not sure this is what you meant, but when you, you went out of your way to say that uh, is there any way we can make sure the power is or know if the power is from God? Well, when God sends an angel, um, the angel is just a servant. Over and over in the New Testament, we see angels appear, and the only angel that ever allowed uh, himself to be uh, worshipped was the angel Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. The other angels say, no, don't worship me. Get up. I too am but a servant of the Most High God kind of thing. So Jesus is always the power, and the angels understand that. Our problem, and, and all you have to do is look at the craziness that goes, wrong, uh, goes around um, in, in the subject of angelology, um, we tend to worship the angel. We're looking for our angel. We're doing all these things. And the answer 
is is no. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. Mark, on line one, last call. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Mm-hmm. I might as well know. Oh, thank you. I wanted to know um, how, how many heavens are there? Because I've heard different things. And uh, what do you suppose God uh, might have put that in the scriptures, whether it was multiple heavens? Okay. Uh, you're talking about First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul's trip to the third heaven. He said, uh, and and the problem with that isn't there's only one heaven, the the the, the abiding place, the, the the home of God. Uh, but what Paul means, he took me to third heaven, and it's it's simply a reference to the first heaven is what we would call our sky, what we can see. We look up in the sky and we see uh, what's up there. We see a plane flying by in the heavens. The second heaven uh, is what we would call outer space, that galaxy um, that, that we know nothing about and we can't see apart from, from telescopes. But what Paul is suggesting there is that the third heaven, it's not that there's more than one heaven. It's just there is a place out there way out there beyond anything that we can see or imagine uh, that is the abode of God. And if we understand that, well, Paul is saying that uh, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know. Uh, We know he died. He was taken to heaven. Jesus sent him back. Well, the place that he went where he said he saw inexpressible things, things that man's not permitted to tell, that was in the very presence of God. So there's not three heavens uh, as we understand heaven, but he's talking about our atmosphere, the sky, uh, that's the first heaven. The second heaven uh, is what's beyond that, we call it outer space, and then the third heaven way beyond all of that. And Paul's point was that he went right into the very presence of God uh, where he saw inexpressible things. So, Mark, that's all that was. There's only one heaven where Jesus lives at the right hand of God the Father. And by the way, where people that you love and I love are enjoying his presence at this very moment. Hey, good show today. Thank you for the calls. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on AM 630, The Word, tomorrow at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.